Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 267. I'm Sean. Hello! I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. I don't know if I'm ready to do this yet. I don't know if there's ever really a good time. Right? I've been so excited to talk about this movie, and then today I started getting all emo, knowing that this is, like, really the final... I mean, the movie's out there. It is what it is. We know that it's over. But I guess this is, like, the last, like, new thing we get to experience with the Guardians is our own review. So I started getting a little sad today. But I'm glad that we bring this up now because a question that I definitely want to ask at the end, kind of as we're wrapping up Guardians as a trilogy, is does this movie... We're going to talk about where does it rank amongst the three films, but something that I think is going to be a very interesting conversation is does it carry the emotional weight the second, the third, the fourth time around that it does the first time that you see it? Oh, well, I can answer that for you for myself right now is I'm going to try my very hardest listeners to do more than respond with because that's what I feel like watching this movie and thinking about it. So I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to try and be more articulate than that today. Well, that's good. Um, but yes, does it hold the emotional weight? Where does it rank? And is this like actually the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy? I'm not all that sure. That on top of many other things is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at check out visit fierceboxdesignco.com to check out all of the collections all right this is gonna have to be a linear review you think we do these from time to time where instead of just giving you the entire plot and then breaking everything down we kind of just interrupt the plot and talk and it's gonna happen a lot in the beginning like i was kind of scared from the start um because of the amount of flashbacks that we see It's more so in the beginning, and it kind of loosens up more after you get through, like, the first third of the film. Which is really funny that we're stressing this one, and we did freaking Quantumania last week, which is the multiverse and sort of time travel, and that we didn't have to break down linearly. Yeah. Funny. Well, before we get into plot, I want to off-top talk about the first song because it is so tied into what we're seeing as the visual um I had seen the soundtrack before we went into the movie and I was pretty hyped just on the songs that they chose and I mean right we we all know I think that's part of what keeps us coming back for Guardians is that we know that James Gunn is gonna have a banger soundtrack every single time so I was so excited to see one of my favorite songs creep by Radiohead on this playlist was not expecting it to bat lead off though. And as soon as they start, uh, 
feeding you the Marvel logo, uh, they do have the baseline underneath. And I was like, oh, wow, they're just going right for the jugular here. And when we were seeing this in the movies, in the theater for the first time, I immediately started crying right away. And I'm like, this isn't even sad yet. It's just the song. I, I just started reacting to it. So the song kicks off. You get um, a flashback. We see a baby rocket raccoon being pulled from his cage to be experimented on. Uh, we then jump forward to a modern day nowhere and see that the new normal is Peter Quill belligerently drunk as he pines for Gamora. So, yes, you get the Marvel logo and they changed the graphic a little bit mm. instead of showing all of the MCU they showed just the Guardians of the Galaxy and to my memory the only other time they did this was for Chadwick Boseman going into Wakanda Forever right so Correct. it goes to show how much the Guardians of the Galaxy the last picked for kickball right yeah. The the one that nobody really had that much faith in other the than James Gunn. Biggest roll of the dice. This is the one that other than Chadwick Boseman in memoriam, right? They got their own graphic. That's how much the Guardians of the Galaxy have meant to the MCU. So that off the rip stands out to me. Um you know, something about Baby Rocket we saw this in the trailer. Right. So you know that it's going to be a tough watch. And there were a lot of people talking about if you're an animal lover, if you're sensitive to animal cruelty, not that they show that much, but the visual knowing that it's going to happen, it left a lot of people disturbed. It left a lot of people bothered. And I think the anticipation of that led to me not realizing until this time around that Baby Rocket is the only one standing forward. Mm -hmm. The rest turn their backs and cower, and he's the one that stays standing forward. And I think that it's subtle, and it's easily missed the first time, even the first two times that you see this movie. I think that's also why, you know, you hear the high evolutionary say throughout the film, why were you able to figure this out? Everything else was an experiment. Why are you thinking on your own? How, how did you get this before I did? I think that's part of it. This is where it's answered up top is because Rocket's always been different. He's always been curious. He's always been the one who's fearless. And we see it from the time he was a baby. Um, to touch on what you said is, you know, how bothersome this movie can be. I think what strikes me more than the visuals are the sounds anytime we see the animals in the cages because you hear, you know, and I think that they do this on purpose. You definitely hear dogs in the background and, um, you know, as a dog owner, as a dog lover, like that's really difficult for me to hear, uh, you know, because it just sounds like a kennel or a shelter. And, you know, I, I think that they definitely do that to toy with your emotions. But to me, uh, it's a lot more difficult to hear something that is real, that sounds real versus seeing the CGI. And I, I think that that's what most people, I, I, at least I can, I, I should only speak for myself. That's what I'm triggered by, if anything. But then they do lighten the mood a little bit. We're checking in 
with the Guardians as they are now following the Christmas special. Um, so as the song is playing, Rocket's sort of walking through, we see um, Nebula and Groot putting up a sign. You know, they're rebuilding. Uh, Mantis starts to dance. And I love that we get a call back when Drax says to her, only idiots dance. Um, and I love that they set that up here because they're going to pay off on it at the very end of this film. Um, what I bump on, and I didn't the first two times that we saw this because we did see it twice in theaters. Um, I feel like Drunk Peter is a total disconnect from the Christmas special. And, you know, it's a Christmas special. People were sort of treating it like a one-off, but you did need it because that's where we got the introduction of Cosmo. Well, not necessarily. We were technically introduced to Cosmo in the collector's set, but this is the first time we know that Cosmo is roaming free and that she is a part of the Guardians is in that Christmas special. So it is sort of a continuation, but Peter is not in this state in the special. Yes, he does need to be cheered up. Uh, and that's the whole reason that they go get Kevin Bacon. But I feel like this makes more sense for a version of Peter after Endgame, but not after we've seen him kind of okay. And to be fair, everybody processes grief differently but I I kind of went that escalated quick or, or or this this fell apart pretty quickly it's too many films of Peter pining over Gamora I think because Gamora now is not dead we know that she's not dead you know their version of her is but we know that there's a version of her that's alive she just doesn't want anything to do with the Guardians, right? Because technically speaking, she's a variant. Um, yeah, I, I understand that that becomes a through line in this film. And we'll talk, obviously, about Gamora more as the movie goes on here. But to your point, it seems like a bit of a disconnect. We went and did this whole holiday special to cheer him up. It seemingly worked, and we're right back to where we were. Realistically, this version of Peter, I don't even think it it, it works after Endgame. To me, this exists in between Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah. Because Gamora's yeah. back. The variant, right, is back in, in Endgame. Endgame. Yeah, but that's right, because she was the first sacrifice in Infinity War for the stone. Right. And then it was Natasha in Endgame, because we see that happen twice. Yes. But you're right. She, Yeah, it happened first in Infinity War. You are correct. And it kind of makes me wonder, though. Was this all done just for the sake of getting what is a brilliant fake out in the trailer? Because yeah. we see Nebula carrying Peter's body. And, you know, it it set the Internet ablaze of, oh, my goodness, are they going to, to kill off Star-Lord? And that's, you know, what you were supposed to be led to believe. But it was just this scene where she is, in fact, carrying his body because he's passed out drunk and putting him to bed. Um, I can only imagine how much fun they had with that prop um, because they made uh, a lookalike of Chris Pratt that weighed about 25 pounds so that Karen Gillum could lift him. Uh, and, you know, as you see all these interviews come out, 
you learn that it lived in James Gunn's trailer and I don't even want to know what they did with it. Another thing that I bump on and honestly, I was kind of surprised that I was finding so much fault so early on in this rewatch because you and I had given this perfect marks when we saw it in theaters, but that's why you rewatch things and that's why we do this show. Um, Nebula gets Peter to bed and he grabs her arm and he says, I love you, thinking that she's Gamora. Other than making this joke later on that, uh, you know, Gamora calls Peter out saying, it doesn't sound like me that you're talking about. It sounds like her. And she points at Nebula. Um, They really do nothing to unpack how this might make Nebula feel, especially because she has always been standing in her sister's shadow. Uh, and after that, re- that relationship has been reconciled, now she's right back to having to play second fiddle to her sister. And I feel like it would be more hurtful now because she's the one who stuck around to be part of this found family, but Gamora didn't. Yeah, I think um, Nebula's just so mechanical at this point. I mean, we kind of know her as not having a ton of feelings, And I feel like they leaned into comedy with Nebula more in this film, more so than we've seen in others. For sure. I don't think they really needed to flesh this out. Could they have? Yeah. But I don't think they really had to. Well, I was listening to an interview with Karen Gillum, too, and she had said that she always thought it would be interesting if Nebula sort of did have a crush on Quill. Um, So if she's sort of using that for her performance I'm just surprised that they didn't play more into it in the story um but what I really like too is this beat after where um you know the rest of them meet back up they grab something to eat and they talk about you know what are we going to do with Peter um just while they're walking around nowhere it's just the perfect example of how well these actors do know their characters because this just feels so comfortable and then they flip everything on its head because we got a second to breathe and now boom we get hit with a villain yeah as the guardians continue their day adam warlock arrives and attacks nowhere the guardians fight him off eventually however rocket is gravely wounded and when they use the med packs to stop the bleeding in his chest the mechanics in his body short out leaving him fighting for his life I think it's a good intro for Warlock because it's not the typical villain intro. Um, They have him flying in. He's glowing gold. He's got not quite a smile, but almost a smirk on his face. And you don't know, like, is he just a traveler that's arriving? And out of nowhere... He just grabs Rocket and starts to attack. I think that's kind of intentional because the song is also kind of upbeat. Like, it's it's a rock song. It's driving. And I think you're more intrigued. So when he, in fact, does crash land into nowhere and grab Rocket, it totally catches you off guard. Especially if you've forgotten the tie to the Sovereign and who he actually is. Um the sound editing in this crash is phenomenal. How they cut from Rocket screaming uh, when you're in his POV to the wide shots of him bursting through buildings. It is just so well done. And this fight is pretty brutal because 
you know, our heroes are being hit pretty hard here. Um, but to me, this is the best shot fight sequence since the snatch and grab in the first one when we when Quill meets Gamora, Rocket, and Groot for the first time. Yeah, and Will Poulter is amazing. Oh my gosh. I just love him. I still am in shock that he came from Narnia. Especially, you know, I said it when we reviewed it a couple of weeks ago, but especially to see this performance now. Um I just can't believe that he has been with Disney for so long, but it it really is easy to see why he got this role because there is still that element of petulant child that he brings in. Yeah. And I thought for certain that he was going to play a bigger part as a bigger bad. They never really cash in on that though. And I understand because by the end of the movie, he's no longer an antagonist, but he's so strong that he nearly beats Drax to death. Um, that he leaves Rocket for dead, that he nearly beats Nebula to death. And after all of this happens, he becomes the butt of the joke for basically the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean, because of his strength and his power, it's not somebody that you want on the opposite side of things. So I do love that this is a story of him coming from the dark to the light and taking advantage of his second chance. I love that for his character, but you're right. I was hoping for more of a plot point as far as him being the villain. What also strikes me about this sequence, um, I remember the first time we watched this in the theater, I had that pit in my stomach. Um, because Mantis is just crying so hard and she's so desperate for Peter to come and help her because she can't take her hand off of Rocket. But upon the rewatch, I started to wonder, is this reaction, because number one, she's in so much pain, she literally just had her arm snapped in half. Is it because she's about to lose a friend or is it because she can see and feel Rocket's life flashing before his eyes because let's not forget she is an empath um and I think it's sort of everything all at once because she might see his life flashing before his eyes but she still doesn't know exactly what happens to him because right they don't know that until they get the pass key later on and actually see the operation um so I don't know I don't think that she knew exactly what was going on, but I think that she is learning the backstory here as far as losing Lila, Teefs, and Floor. Right, and of course, we don't know any of that just yet. Um, we do flash back to the day that Rocket gets experimented on. He learns to speak and is initially scared. However, he makes friends with an otter, a walrus, and a rabbit. Um, who are also former experiments, and they they obviously come up with their names later. Uh, Hertz. Oh, Hertz. The first words that Rocket, the first word he speaks is Hertz. Um, it's it's tragically brilliant. Yeah. Um, that's really the only note that I have on this scene. The balance of this movie is so striking, though, because James Gunn just guts you with that line. And then you've got this really beautiful montage 
Um, I love the song choice of Since You've Been Gone. I, I think it's it's just perfect. And and he knows it too, you know, yeah. like it's it's lively. Um it it just really creates sort of like a warm and fuzzy feeling as Rocket starts to bond with the rest of them. And I love this whole thing, even though it intentionally leaves you with a giant knot in your stomach. Back on their ship, the Guardians see that the med packs accidentally trigger a kill switch that they did not know that Rocket had. They see that he has a model number and that they need a passcode to override it and save his life. Adam Warlock arrives on Counter-Earth. His mother, the High Priestess Aisha, warns the High Evolutionary not to overlook the strength of the Guardians. We learn that the High Evolutionary not only created Rocket, but also that he created the Sovereign. Um, He also wants Rocket retrieved so he can experiment on his brain. The Guardians arrive at the uh, uh, Orgoscope, the headquarters of Orgocorp, the facility that created the technology inside of Rocket, and the High Evolutionary decides to cut them off at the pass, knowing that they're going to go there to get the code to save Rocket. As the Guardians are about to enter uh, Orgocorp, they are intercepted by the Ravagers, led by Gamora, who gives them suits that they need to enter the Orgoscope, which is basically a living organism. Peter had no idea that Gamora would be there and is upset with Nebula for not telling him that she had kept in touch. So much going on here. Um, I love our intro to the High Evolutionary. You know that he's going to be brutal when you start feeling bad for the Sovereign. Because let's not forget, they are the ones that attacked the Guardians and they were doing it almost like it was a video game because they have their avatars fighting so that they don't have to go in themselves. Um, I also sort of love how it's brought full circle because they are sort of the butt of the joke at the beginning of volume two when, you know, they've asked the Guardians for help. The batteries. The batteries get stolen and we learn that they're so easily offended. Um, so now that completely gets flipped on his head on its head, and you end up sort of feeling bad because you know that this is their creator. And he doesn't even care that he's taking one of his creations and flinging it against the wall. And I think this is where you learn um, that Adam was sort of half baked. Yes, because he says something that's not very bright. And Aisha reminds the high evolutionary that he pulled him out early. Um, So to know that the high evolutionary just doesn't care and he's only thinking of his end game and he's not paying attention to the details, uh, you know that that's going to come into play later on and you know he's going to be nothing but pure evil. Chuck Woody Iwuji plays the High Evolutionary. I'm going to save how I feel about him until later on, because I agree. I think that it's a great introduction for him. Um, I also think that you get a lot of information very quickly, Yes, but none of it really feels all that rushed. Like the pacing isn't hurt by the fact that you're having so much thrown at you at one time. I'm interested as to why you are holding your thoughts on him, but I will say it is such a slow burn to get to that unhinged point. 
it's a really beautiful build by the actor to play it cool and and have his motives sort of um you know just bubbling under the surface and uh he's calm cool and collected now but you you know that when the hammer drops it's just going to be bad um I want to talk about the set of the Orgoscope because it is just so nasty. Um, I love it. I love it and hate it. It's gross, but at the same time, this is such a James Gunn concept. I love that he came back for volume three after his role was in question Um. And basically the cast had to fight for him and say, we're not doing it unless he's the director. And now that they have him back, it's sort of like, well, this is why you hired me to begin with. I'm going to take that and run with it and I'm going to do my thing. And let's remember why you hired me. Um, So I love that he got it, but it is just so gross. I mean, I like the idea of it that it's built. It's, it's a living thing, a living planet, um, and you see that because there's all this texture of like skin and hair, but there's also like bones and teeth and pus and it is so nasty. I think it's a brilliant look. I also like having Gamora back and I like having Gamora back in this form. Um, I'm kind of surprised to talk about what you mentioned before, how things seem like a bit of a step back you think that by this point she would have like loosened her grip a little bit on how she views nebula and peter and the guardians in totality because now she knows what she meant to them what her previous form meant to them it almost seems like she's trying too hard to not be the previous form of herself that's a really interesting way to look at this um, and I, I think it's totally valid because there are a million ways that they could have played this out. When you look back at Gamora and Nebula's relationship, they have been through so much. Forget about what we learn about how they were raised and why Nebula's body parts have been replaced. If you even think back to volume one, Technically, Nebula kills Gamora. She leaves her floating in space, and it's Peter that saves her. And we know that they mend that fence in the second one, and they grow to have a very deep bond because after Nebula tried to kill her in the first one, Gamora sacrifices herself for Nebula in the second one. So there were so many different paths that they could have taken, but I like that they put us almost right back to where we started here. Timeline-wise, this is the Gamora that had been killed by Nebula. That's how she knows their relationship. And then when we get the Gamora variant, she does ask Nebula where their relationship is at. And Nebula tells her that eventually, you know they do become sisters. They have a strong bond and that's the relationship that we of the audience have come to fall in love with. So timeline wise now Nebula has evolved. She's had quite the full arc and Gamora is 
back to where we started only knowing Nebula as a person that's coming after her and trying to kill her. But her stance is sort of softened because she knows what that relationship could be. So I love that even though she's at a point where she can't necessarily trust Nebula yet um, and she's not automatically going to go with, oh, well, all of this happened, so let me just play along and stay with you guys. Um, I like that they're still in touch and the door's, you know, just ajar, but it's not fully open yet. And I think that it was so smart to have her join up with the Ravagers now instead of just being completely off by herself. I buy that completely. The only thing that I really don't like about this scene is that Stallone's speech as to, as far as how they need to get in, it's so exhibitionary because it's like, do this, do this, get the pass key so that you can save your friend. And it's like, we, we know it's not that complicated. Like we're, we're picking up what you're putting down. It almost is kind of insulting to the, to the audience because it's not that hard to follow. Yeah. Well, we flash back to Rocket being taught by the high evolutionary and growing smarter by the day. He is told of the new world, Counter-Earth, where the experiments will go to live when they are ready. The high evolutionary tells 89P13, which is Rocket's code name, of an issue he had with Batch 90, which causes them to go mad. Rocket sees the issue immediately and gives the high evolutionary the new formula to level out the protein, because that was where they were having the problem. Um... The two things that are really, really great here, not only do we see how smart Rocket is, because we know that he's smart, right? But we see just how brilliant he actually is, because um, we've seen him build bombs out of nowhere, and we just think he's a great counter hero. But you really get to see his intelligence at play for the first time here, more so than just being quick on his feet. What they do with the High Evolutionary, though... In this particular moment, he's brilliantly evil because he seems so nice. We, of course, know that he's yes. not, but he seems like he's going to be Rocket's friend. Yeah, or even like a father-son bond because you can tell that the High Evolutionary does have that line drawn of, I'm your maker, and he's compartmentalized all of his creations, but you sort of think that Rocket is going to be that exception. And we don't even get the relationship of like mentor and mentee at the very least. Like none of that. Yeah. The Guardians successfully infiltrate uh, Orgocore as uh, mechanics. They are disguised who have arrived to work at the facility. Mantis accidentally expels their spacesuits into space, leaving them not only to find the code, but also a new means of getting back to their ship. Gamora takes an employee at gunpoint, despite Peter and Nebula's wishes to do it peacefully. They get Rocket's file, however, an alarm is set off as Mantis and Drax are recognized. As they fight their way out, Groot arrives with their ship, however, Drax and Nebula are badly wounded. Peter convinces Uda, their hostage, to let them go into the Orgocorp system where he disables the gravity holding the guards in place. So now they're floating about and that's how they make their escape. Um, what's really brilliant about this, and I think this can be said for most of the film, is the roller coaster of emotion. Because obviously, 
you get a fake out of Drax's death. We think that Drax has now been killed. Um, and that's on the heels of some very, very funny moments. So you have these really heavy moments. You have these awkward, funny moments. Um, and I think that these are the things that we're going to miss. Not only with the Guardians seemingly having wrapped up, but also with the MCU losing James Gunn. Agreed. Uh, the balance and the pacing are just incredible because the break-in is hilarious. Everything from the radio channels and Peter airing his feelings out in front of everyone, not knowing that everyone can hear, uh, to the joke about the boss's nephew with Nathan Fillion. Yeah. Um, and especially my favorite part of this whole thing is having Mantis... Um, make the security guard fall in love with Drax. Yes. Absolutely hysterical. It just sort of builds on the relationship that and the bond that was formed between them when they go to get Kevin Bacon in the holiday special. And you've got this like sibling rivalry relationship between the two of them and it's brilliant. But then the break in is funny and the breakout is really rough because I really didn't think we were leaving with everybody. No. To see Drax the destroyer out for the count that that was pretty tough to watch right because he's not only shot in the chest but then as they're getting they're picking him up to take him away he gets shot in the back yeah and the way that this that the scene is shot the music the look on their face i thought for a second like oh wow we're gonna lose one right now when it's least expected what I do really like about this scene, though, is the glimpses that we get of Star-Lord from Volume 1. Yes. Where as much as being a womanizer is terrible, uh, you know, that's how we first meet him until Gamora when he's ready to be with her. And now he's going back to his old ways of thinking that everybody wants him, everybody's into him, and he's going to turn on that Star-Lord charm to get out of the situation. Well, that scene in the elevator, how none of them cracked. And I I watched specifically at everybody's face other than Chris Pratt's to see if they were holding in laughter. And you can see moments where the three actresses in the elevator where they're almost biting their lip to not break out in laughter with all that he's saying and doing. Right before Karen Gillum gets to the, you left out some information, but that's the gist of it. There is a moment of this in the gag reel, but my guess is that um, they probably were laughing and there might have been a couple of uh, choice words for, for not being able to get through it because you would think, yeah, that you're almost seeing them break and there's going to be take after take of this scene, there's hardly anything in the gag reel from this. Yeah. Um, we see more of Rocket's adolescence as he and his friends become more excited for the new world. They decide that they need actual names instead of codes. They decide on Lila, Teeth's Floor, and Rocket. Rocket tells them that he's going to build great ships that they can use to fly into the forever sky. It is at this moment... That if you haven't fallen in love with all of these characters, you fall in love with every single one of them. Rocket notwithstanding. We all love Rocket by this point. You know, because especially with Floor, 
she could have very easily become annoying. And she never does. She's never too childish. She's never too over the top. She starts to get there, but it's always in such an innocent, charming way that it's at this point that I think all of these characters, like, I've totally bought in on all of them. I agree. Um, Yeah, and especially with Floor, I agree with you. I think that that could have gotten really annoying, but they toe the line just enough where you do have the character that does represent that childlike innocence. And it's just enough because they totally capture your heart and then James Gunn rips it out of your chest and stabs it a couple of times. Um, I love this moment for Rocket where he says, we'll all fly away together um, because he does still get to see out that dream. It's just with a different group of friends. And that's really hard, too. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the voice actors here for a moment, because now we're actually like getting moments with them fleshed out. It's not just like, oh, we'll take care of you. And then a bunch of giggling and laughing. Now you're actually getting them as characters. Uh, Linda Cardellini plays Lila. And um, I love the maternal. Well, it's weird because yeah. it's it's maternal but turns yeah. to love interest, which is a little weird. But I do love the dynamic that that character has with Rocket. And I love the life that she gave her. I agree, which is... Hard for me to say because if you're a Boy Meets World fan, we have all harbored resentment for Linda Cardellini since she broke up Corey and Topanga. Um, But I have grown to love her as Hawkeye's wife. um, And I love that Marvel loves her that much that they brought her back in this different role. Um, I love Lila as a character, but I think you're spot on that it is sort of odd that it goes from maternal to love interest. But I think that is important because it does reflect the passage of time and how long they've been locked up here while the high evolutionary is not only performing all of these experiments, but he's also doing, uh, you know, he's building this new society and building a new world. So I think that's also where we needed it to clue us in as to how long they've been captive because you see it with rocket to your point before you said now, you know, he's bonding with them more. Part of that was because he was just a baby. Now we see him more. I would say he's like an adolescent here. Yeah. Um, and Asim Chowdhury voices Teefs and Michaela Hoover voices floor. And what they bring to this is a lighthearted innocence, um, a very childish innocence that builds to the tragedy so brilliantly because you do see how they they don't seem quite as grown up as Rocket and Lila. They seem stunted. Yes. So when you get that moment later on, those, to me, those are the two I think you feel the worst for when when they're ultimately killed. Spoiler, they die. I'm sure you knew that by now. Well, no, but I feel worse for them even before they're killed just because they've had so much more done to them. You know, I mean, like the, the, the look of these characters and the meaning, the look in the design is just horrible. They look like they're straight out of Sid's attic. Exactly. 
But because they're animals, that's what makes it harder to swallow. And without spoiling my full review of this film, this is probably the one that I'm going to go back and watch the least because of these two, because it's so hard to look at them. Like, yes, Lila has had her arms replaced and it's and she's also got the same markings on her back that Rocket does of where they've, you know, adjusted her spine. But for Flor and Teeps, Flor's entire mouth has been replaced with a piece of metal. She's got no legs. She's got like these spider like tentacles and Teeps, I, I like his eyes are welded open. It's awful. And like that's what makes this one the hardest to watch for me and uh, honestly I don't know how many times I'm gonna go back and and review it just because it's so difficult to see them like this back on the ship the guardians watch a video showing how rocket was experimented on they see that the code is gone however they recognize one of the high evolutionaries scientists and believe that he downloaded the passcode into a hard drive on his head so they head to counter earth to find him against gamora's wishes as all she wants to do is leave and be back with the ravagers the Sovereign kill one of the Ravagers and take his communication device and speak with Gamora, she obviously doesn't know who she's speaking with, who gives them the coordinates for her pickup. Um, how are we feeling about Gamora here? Um, I go back and forth so much, but we're supposed to, right? I mean, she is one of my favorite characters and I, I always loved her so much, but it's so frustrating to just be like, all right, you've seen what they're willing to do for their friend. Now you see what this family means. So can't you loosen your grip a little bit? Can't you soften your stance? And to the point that you made earlier, she seems to be resisting it even more now. And I think that might be part of this version of her is that she's just got her guard up so much. She does see um, the love that they have for each other. She might even be starting to experience some sort of feelings. And maybe that's why she turns because I, I mean, I do love the line where she calls Peter out. And she says, what are you so afraid of in yourself that I need to be something for you? I was like, damn, like straight to the core, rips Peter apart. Um, but I also like that she is defending herself in that way because she could easily give in to all of it and say, all right, I'm not going to be with the Ravagers anymore. I'm going to try and make this work with you guys. But if she's not feeling that yet, she doesn't have to. She doesn't owe them anything. Well, my thing is, and you said it perfectly, she's got her guard up. She's had her guard up the entire time. She seems to be very wise to the ways of the world. Has a Ravager ever said to her, greetings and salutations, Gamora? I Without her being suspicious and just blindly giving away the coordinates and never shows a bit of remorse for what's about to happen for giving up their whereabouts. Exactly. Because she does try to play to that emotion when she's trying to get Nebula to drop her off. And she's like, come on, we're family. And 
you might be, but this is not the version of this relationship that's been reconciled where Nebula owes you anything. Yeah. In another flashback, the High Evolutionary has a breakthrough and grabs Rocket to show him the success and asks how he knew of the protein imbalance. Rocket tells him nothing as he is terrified of the High Evolutionary's anger. The High Evolutionary tells Rocket that he isn't coming to the New World as he was simply an experiment and that he and his friends will be killed as soon as the experiment is over. This is where I start to not really know how to feel about the high evolutionary because when he has that moment with rocket where he's very friendly with him and playing on rocket's gullibility to me that's that that's evil i think the act of playing god is evil. What you see him do later to counter Earth is evil. The problem is, and I have this note over and over and over again, so I'm only going to say this once. He's just screaming. I understand he becomes unhinged. There are times where he's just hysterical and he's just screaming at things. Oh, no, I love it. I love it. Well, I think you sort of need it because his people eventually stage a mutiny on him. But I also love that it delivers on the entire time he's been saying everything with a smile. Even here, when he says to Rocket, um, he's like, you look like you were cobbled together with by children with fat fingers. And he's got a smile on his face. And he's like, you couldn't have possibly thought that you were fit for the new world or something like that. And he's still so soft-spoken. So I think the yelling, I mean, I don't typically like that because I think it's very easy to convey anger and it's very easy to do such an over-the-top performance. But I think you also need the hide to the Jekyll that he's been this entire time. The moment that Rocket learns, though, that they're not going to the new world. And he, and he even says to him, you could figure out the protein imbalance, but you couldn't figure out this. It's tough. It really is. But that, that he's not yelling yet here. This is still all very monotone, very calm. Like well, no, that lid's about to bubble over and he, pop off. He starts getting hysterical earlier when Rocket figured out the imbalance before he could. Yes. Yeah, that's the first glimpse of it. You and are And that's right. what triggers the, I want him killed so we can study his brain because I don't understand how he figured it out before me. What I also like is that this is sort of the launch point. Um, and it, it's something that just sort of makes me laugh to myself because I find it amusing. This obsession with Rocket and getting stuck on how he figured it out. It reminds me of Les Mis and how Javert gets stuck on Jean Valjean because there's the whole song where he's uh, singing his, his prison number and that's all the high evolutionary says. He never calls him Rocket. He keeps screaming the number. And then there's always a point where I just kind of amuse myself by thinking of Les Mis. 
The Guardians arrive at Counter-Earth and make a poor first impression. The citizens are initially scared and hostile until Quill shows sympathy and care. Meanwhile, the Sovereign arrive to find Gamora and steal Rocket. One family takes the Guardians in and shows them where they can find the scientist they are searching for. Peter, Nebula, and Groot take the family's car to the headquarters and instruct Drax and Mantis to stay behind and guard Rocket. Gamora flips through Peter's things as the trio drive through the slums of the quote-unquote perfect society. Recorder Thiel, who is the scientist in question, warns the High Evolutionary that the Guardians have arrived. I love everything about this arrival to Counter-Earth. Oh, me too. I, I love that it's stuck in the 1980s. I love that this entire bad first impression starts with Drax... Pelting a child in the face with a ball. Yes. Um, I'm about to get real niche here. Um, to me, the people of Counter-Earth, it looks like Zoobly Zoo in the best possible way. Um, that was a show that was on PBS when I was a kid. Um, and they it, it was it's the use of the practical makeup is really what does it. And the show was on in the 80s. They had these, you know gorgeous makeup jobs on you know these people that were portraying animals just right. like it is on counter earth uh and it just immediately took me right back to that show that i loved so much as a kid um and i think the reason it is so reminiscent of zoobly zoo is because they did all of this practical and i was so excited to learn that they did the full makeups for all of the characters that you're going to see close up and then as they get farther and farther back or, or the ones that are in the wider shots, um, they did more like a not full prosthetic makeup. They just had like sort of a rubber mask on almost like how you would go buy like the Michael Myers mask from Party City for Halloween. And it looks real, but it's not, you know, completely molded to your face. But the camera's not going to pick that up because they're so far away. But I love that they went practical for it because they very easily could have CGI. The the child that gets hit with the ball is CGI because right. you're obviously not going to hit a child, but um I just love that they did this and I think it's so brilliant to your point that they've got this 70s 80s-esque set um which is why I think it was such a smart choice to have them go into the house because you're not only getting to see this era that they're living in we're also seeing family photos on the wall and the kids playing. There's a wedding photo and it's setting up exactly who the high evolutionary is about to be wiping out. And it's giving us an emotional connection to these people. Um, so I thought that was so great. And then they double down on making this relatable when they're trying to get Nebula in the car They've never dropped the F-bomb in the MCU, but you held it and you waited for it and you just did it at the perfect time because we have all been Peter in that moment of when you're trying to explain something that's so simple to someone and they're just not getting it and you lose it. And I thought that that was so brilliant to finally have them deploy an F-bomb. And you could see that it was coming. I remember right before he said it, when we saw it for the first time, I was like, is he about to say get in the fucking car? And then he said it, and I went, oh, my God, they paid off on it. You could see it was building to it. That's what I'm saying. Like, we've all been there. Um, question for you. 
is Gamora getting drunk while she's watching the I Bowie? I think that's what she's doing. I think so, too. I didn't pick up on it the first couple of times we saw this, but because she tosses the one can and I, and we see her open up another, I was like, I think she's getting drunk. And I now I don't know how to feel about it because that's what brings out the emotion in her. This is the turning point is because you're getting all in your feels. Like... It would have been cool just to have her rifling through Peter's backpack and starting to get a little bit more insight into who he is than you needing booze to get you there. Well, booze is the universal truth serum. I mean, she she barely cares about having a relationship with her own sister. What What is seeing a picture, a Polaroid of Peter with his mother and his grandfather going to do for her? Not an awful lot. That's fair, but I think it just would have been more meaningful if she realized it on her own without uh, liquid aid there. Um, and I, I love the use of Chasing Rainbows. I think that's the most brilliant song for this scene, especially as they do start the drive uh, through the slums. Right, because we know that we're going... We, we're, we're learning that a new society is coming, right? And we flash back to Rocket telling his friends the truth of the new world and what their fates are going to be. He makes a key to unlock their cages to free them so that he can steal a ship and fly them to safety. He opens the cage that he is in, as well as uh, Lila's, and as they celebrate, the High Evolutionary shoots and kills Lila. Rocket attacks, mauls his face, his men arrive and kill Floor and Teeths before being killed by a grief-stricken Rocket who then escapes on his own. If there was one bit of dialogue other than Hurts that stuck with me Ugh. after this movie, and I'm talking about for weeks, it was Rocket Teeth's floor go now. Me too. And that's where, to your point earlier, it was so brilliant where you did have them in this childlike state. It was that panic of, I know we have to get out of there. She does not have the faculties yet to figure out her own escape. She's relying on her parental figures to do it for her. Um, th this whole thing is just so rough. Before I break down the further emotion of it, I want to talk about one thing that it really sets up well here is that Rocket has had everything squirreled away to make these keys to break them out. He's been doing this from the jump. We've seen him do it with all kinds of weapons. We've seen him steal the batteries from the Sovereign. Right. This is his survival mode. It's what he's always known to do is to just have things on hand because you never know what you're going to need. Like a prosthetic leg. Was it a joke? We don't know. Maybe it's not now. Maybe he just didn't know what he was going to need and he thought he might. Uh, so that was a really brilliant plant here. Um, yeah, but I totally agree. Lila's death is really rough, especially because they do the callback to it's great to have friends and she doesn't even get to finish the line. But it, it, the way Floor is in hysterics, you just knew that everything was going to be so bad and it was all going to go south. And I think what hurts the most is thinking back to one of Rocket's lines from volume two uh, where he's really starting to open up for the first time ever. 
it's with Yandu and the bond that they form because they realize that there are so many parallels in who they are. And Yandu basically tells him, if you care about these people, lean into that. Otherwise, you're going to end up alone like me. And he really did take a lot from Yandu. Um, but one of the things that he said is that everybody's got dead people, meaning that everybody's experienced a loss, but you have to figure out how to press on. But now we see who his dead people are. And not only that, it pretty much one-ups all of the loss that everyone else has experienced because we know that Drax lost his family and we know that it tortures him. We know that Peter lost his mother and he's been taken from his family and you know we've seen that play out as this you know cocky womanizer who's only interested in what serves him at the moment before he does learn to put his chosen family first um so we've we've seen the loss we've seen everybody experience it but what's different about this is that rocket is responsible not only does he feel responsible, he is. I hate to say it. Yeah, this is the saddest moment in the MCU, aside from the release of the Eternals. This is just <laughs> like a really it, it because it's it's perfect. Because like when you think back on like volume two, and I think a critique I had of volume two is Rocket seems mean for the sake of. Like when he's when he goes, I don't remember if he says what's your problem or screw you or whatever it is he says to Quill, but he, but he tags on orphan boy at the end of it. And I remember thinking, like, why are you just mean for the sake of, especially where we left everybody at the end of the first film? And it just seemed like he was nasty just because, well, you needed, you needed trauma. You needed trauma. And this is one of the moments where the high evolutionary is just screaming but it actually, like, upsets me because he's screaming and wailing because he's making fun of Rocket yes. as he's grief-strickenly just wailing and crying. Yeah. That, to me, is where the screaming is necessary. It's probably the most necessary in this moment. And uh, then it, he gets what's coming to him. Yeah. Well, on Counter-Earth, Drax fears that something is coming and dupes Mantis into leaving their post to go to Quill. Meanwhile, Quill and Groot meet with the High Evolutionary, who tells them that the flaws of the Earth have led him to looking to create the most flawless society, because he loved Earth when he went there the first time, and he wanted to recreate it without any sort of faults. They send one of their people, right, one of their henchmen, to retrieve Rocket and tell Quill that they will destroy Counter-Earth and start over again, having learned from their previous mistakes. Warlock arrives to take Rocket for himself to deliver to the High Evolutionary as a means of saving the Sovereign. Gamora rescues Rocket as Counter-Earth begins to explode. Warlock's mother is killed in front of him as the High Evolutionary's ship begins to leave Counter-Earth. That's the Arete. Now, uh, Groot and Quill are still inside. Nebula, Drax, and Mantis board as they instruct Gamora to leave with Rocket. Quill and Groot kill all of the High Evolutionary's people as they escape the ship 
with Thiel, who dies in the process. They pull the hard drive from his head and board their ship with Gamora and escape. They obviously have no idea that the other three are on the Arete. Uh, to me, it's at this moment where I buy the High Evolutionary as finally being evil. Because of what you said. We've seen the wedding pictures. We've seen the children playing. All of these humanals, because that's what they call them, the human animal. They're all dead. They are all dead in this moment. There's no chance. Uh, we, they don't we, have a chance. We've but we've seen... also watched them get blown apart. Right. No, it's, uh, and that's it. You took Utopia and it's, you're completely destroying it. But I think um, the other element here that sets up how evil he is, is that the Sovereign are still trying to pursue Rocket even though they know he's already on the planet and the high evolutionary is easily going to get him, they are trying to get rocket themselves and present it to the high evolutionary in order to redeem themselves. So I think that this is brilliant, not only because you have that added element of conflict, it's not conflict for conflict's sake. It reinforces the idea of how evil he is because they know that they could be next well, and you needed this. It's a great moment for Warlock because you needed to get him to a point where he would flip. And having his mother killed in front of him is that moment. And I think you also needed to make him more than just the funny man at the end of all of this. Exactly. Uh, I also don't want to move on before um, hitting on one of my favorite uh, voice cameos. Another... Uh, recycling of an actor from the MCU, you've got Judy Greer voicing Warpig, whose head gets ripped off by Warlock. Um, I don't really understand this Bebop and Rocksteady design of these characters, of the High Evolutionary's henchmen. I mean, well, I guess that's sort of it, right? Is that he started with smaller animals and making these minor adjustments, like with Rocket and Lila, and now you've got smaller animals like a pig and a is it a turtle or am i totally getting stuck on tmnt right now i'm not exactly sure what the other uh, i can't is, remember what the but other they're bigger was. is my point right so the high evolutionary's creations are evolving so it does serve as a visual for us to pick up on in that way um i love uh the battle that ensues on the ship that we get this Octo Groot, that scene gets like seriously violent with all the guns, but you know, go out with a bang in my opinion. Um, and I, I love that Drax Mantis and Nebula are getting on the ship as Peter and Groot are jumping off. Like that's so classic. N not only is it great to build on the conflict, but it's just such classic guardians humor. Um, and I think it's even better that now Gamora has to come to their rescue. Right. Like, she's in this whether she wants to be or not. On the ship, Drax, Mantis, and Nebula bicker about their position and discover that the High Evolutionary has children locked in cages. Groot, Quill, and Gamora look to use the passcode on Rocket as he dies. He sees Lila, Floor, and Teefs who tell him that the Forever Sky is real and that he will go with them. However, it is not his time, so they send him back. He awakens, and the med packs help 
heal him this time now that they've got that passcode. They learn that Drax, Mantis, and Nebula are on the ship with the kids. The High Evolutionary arrives and tells Rocket and Quill that he will kill Drax, Mantis, and Nebula if they don't return. The moment where you see the cages filled with the children. Oof. Yeah, that, that, that about sums it up. You know what I think is really interesting, too, is that... Um, and, and it wasn't something I caught upon the first viewing. It really had nothing to do with the humanals turning on themselves and not being a perfect society. It's that he was going to do this all along anyway, because now he has something that more closely resembled a human. So I think what we're supposed to take away from this is that even though, or even if the humanals were the utopia that he wanted, counter earth might not have survived anyway, because he's just that deranged. Um, one of the things that I bump on in this sequence is that Nebula goes in on Drax and she's calling him stupid. And like, we do have this really great moment where Mantis comes to his defense and she's like, he loves us. I don't care if he's stupid, but I could have done without that moment of Mantis sticking up for him because I don't feel like we need Nebula to go in so hard. Like it, it seems kind of unmotivated. And I feel like there were so many other reasons that she could have gotten so angry with Drax or no, not that she needs to be angry with Drax, but I feel like if we needed to get this emotion for her, it could have been all channeled through this broken relationship with Gamora. And knowing what she lost in the relationship that was fixed. What's perfect to me in all of this, though, is as Rocket is getting ready to leave and go off into that forever sky, and she's going to send him back, this being Lila, she says, the story was yours all along. Well, let me finish. Oh, no, I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I, we're clearly not going to be on the same page about it. Um, and then she goes, my beloved raccoon. And even in that moment, he has to say, I'm not a raccoon. And then she just shoves him and down he goes. Right. Well, I that I'm not a raccoon has been reinforced so many times in this film, more so than it has since volume one. But I like that they did it because now he's going to fully own who he is once he realizes that. And but he's getting it from her. And you'd think that coming from her, like it would have stuck. And even in that moment, it doesn't stick. True. Fair. Um, but I do want to go back to the story has been yours all along. You just didn't know it. I feel like that was a bit heavy-handed and something that was more for the audience than it was for Rocket. And I kind of went, really? Was it, though? Because you could make the argument that even though we open the Guardians trilogy on Quill, it's not his story, and that's fine with me. But Volume 1 is about the loss of his mother and the fallout that happens from that and him just being selfish and cocky and having to learn how to love and be a part of a family and choosing family. Volume two is about him and his daddy issues. And he loses not one, but two fathers in a span of about 30 seconds. And now having to deal with the fallout from that. Volume three, he's dealing with the loss of Gamora and the fallout. 
So where was this rocket story, really? I mean, I love that we're getting the backstory finally. I love that we are getting all of these flashbacks, painful as they may be. But where was that all along? Oh, it's been there the whole time. Because I have a counter. The first movie Hit me ends, with it. The first movie ends with Rocket losing his only friend because Groot dies. He loses his second friend... And the person that he started actually building a relationship with in Yondu in the second film. The last shot of the second film is Rocket crying. This is now the third film. It's Rocket putting his past behind. Because the film ends with him being the the leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy, right? So for three films, well for two films really, it's been... Quill and Rocket bickering about who the captain is. But I'd say that Rocket, Rocket's had just as much loss and just as much to lose as Quill has. And at the end of this, he walks away with what was rightfully his the whole time. Oh, no. I will absolutely give you that one, that volume three is Rocket's origin story. It was the, it was your story the all along that I bump on. But with with you pointing out that it's been a bickering match the entire time, you're right. They were laying more groundwork there than I had even realized. In all fairness, too, Rocket is the first one to refer to them as the Guardians of the Galaxy. And that was the only other thing that I had considered where I bought into this is that he's really the one that determines they are going to be a chosen family and that they are going to stick together instead of you know going after their own pursuits going back to the first one because they all had a different stake in who they were getting this orb to right um well mantis and nebula they cannot communicate with the children in the cages however drax can and explains that they need to stay away from the starboard walls as it will be uh destroyed to help their escape Quill, Gamora, Rocket, and Groot arrive with Kraglin and his men to aid in the extraction, right? Because now they've just flown nowhere up to the Arete. Um, the High Evolutionary unleashes his army to fight them off and retrieve 89P13. The army infiltrates and attacks nowhere while three Alberisks are unleashed on Drax, Mantis, and Nebula. Mantis uses her powers to befriend the Alberisks. Um, while Kraglin uses his heart to control the arrow to defend nowhere with help from Cosmo, who's finally a good dog. The High Evolutionary's top allies turn on him as they see his hysterical obsession with Rocket, um, and as that's just going to get all of them killed, as they try to take control of the Arete, he kills all of them. The Guardians reunite and plan to rescue all of the ship's captives. So, to go back to what you were talking about earlier, with Nebula being overly mean to Drax. I think that you needed it because it set up this... It set up that he's been the butt of the joke for most of the film, that they don't take him seriously. And even when Mantis is defending him, he goes, I don't think I appreciate this defense. Yeah. Um, When they say, why didn't you tell us that you could speak their language? And he just looked at... He looked at them and gave them that look and he goes, why didn't you ask? So, yeah, I, I think that the build to that was perfect. 
I feel like that joke still would have landed even without the scene where she's losing her mind on him. I, I, I just feel like, I, I don't know, I, I think I might have to die on that hill that it was completely uncalled for. Um, I love this poker scene where they call Craglin back in. The cameos are perfect. I love that we get Seth Green voicing Howard the Duck. That's amazing. Um, but the sight of nowhere appearing out of the sky is just incredible. I love that they have turned the planet into a, a ship. It's weaponized. You know that was Rocket. Um, that whole thing is just incredible. Um, I really love the callback to the Abaris, um, because we as the audience definitely recognize them from volume two. I was kicking myself, though, because we should have known how easily that they could be defeated and that they're not actually after people. And Mantis reminds us that they're only after batteries. However, I feel like that should have come from Drax because Mantis wasn't there when they fought the first one off in the, you know, in the volume two, the opening sequence with right. baby Groot running around dancing. I feel like it would have been a better callback for Drax in this moment to remind them that they're not actually dangerous. They're not going to eat them. Yeah, but Drax, he took such great pride in killing the one in the second film that all he wants to do is kill. Because it's the same thickness from the inside. As it is, yes, yes. But it would have been nice, too, for them to have that moment of being like a tag team where he remembers, no, we can take this thing down. And maybe she points out, but we don't have to kill it. And then she can stabilize it with her power. Um, I love that we see Kraglin get to step up and finally learn how to control the arrow. I love our one last glimpse of Yondu. Did we need it? No. Was this totally James Gunn just being a good friend to Michael Rooker and getting him a day on set and one last, uh, one last ride with the guardians? Yeah, absolutely. Do I care? No, it was perfect. Um, and then we get probably the most unhinged line from the high evolutionary there is no god that's why i stepped in and that's when this long overdue mutiny occurs with his people i love that i I think this was a real departure for marvel that it's not enough that this villain is going to be taken down by our heroes they actually get everyone to turn on him and help them out in the process just because he is that evil. I think that it's one of the best lines in the movie. Oh, absolutely it is. Even though he's screaming it completely unhinged at this point. But this is where I think the screaming works. I love the moment for Rocket where he says, I'm done running. (sighs) No sleep till Brooklyn. This is easily one of the best sequences in the trilogy. I love how this was shot. Um, It's made to look like one long take, though I don't think that it was because of the blend of practical and CGI. But I love that they each get one more highlight as like a comic book splash page where they're all, you know, it's kind of in slow motion. Then they'll get frozen and then the battle continues. So I love that they all get that moment of one last hurrah. Um What I also really love about this scene is that um, the woman who was Scarlett Johansson's stunt double as Black Widow for the Avengers uh, and for the solo movie, she's now 
the stunt choreographer for this entire film. So I think that that's so cool that not only did were were they as loyal to their crew as they were to the actors, but she also got promoted in the process. I think that's awesome. Is this the right song, though? Yeah. Why not? Because Peter's not even from Brooklyn. Doesn't matter. It, it doesn't, but it, because it, it works so well for the sequence, but I'm, I'm kind of like, where's the tie-in other than just having a cool song? Like, this, out of all of them, feels the least connected to the characters. Like, I'm surprised no they didn't with go it. with Intergalactic. If you if you needed a Beastie Boys track, like, I, I could have actually pictured Intergalactic um, as they were flying into Counter-Earth. And instead, you get that song, I think, from uh, Empire Records. Yeah. Um, well, after fighting their way through the ship, they start to free the captives. Nebula and Kraglin fr- uh, fly the Arete and Nowhere side by side, while Cosmo uses telekinesis to close the gap and help the kids escape. They also rescue Warlock, as they believe he deserves a second chance. Rocket, meanwhile, frees all of the animals being held for experiments and sees that he is, in fact, a raccoon. The High Evolutionary arrives to kill Rocket, who fights him off. The High Evolutionary is eventually stabbed by Gamora and left to die on the Arete as it begins to explode. Cosmo loses strength as the ships begin to separate. Quill falls behind to retrieve his Zoom and is pulled into space to face the same fate as Yondu. However, he is saved by Warlock and brought back to nowhere. Um, I think the pacing here is really good, especially with the extraction. Like, they could have dragged this out. It could have taken forever and a day. It doesn't. And you also don't really get, like, a long, drawn-out battle with a big bad in this either. But I don't think that it's necessary, because that's not where the action exists. The action lives with extracting everybody and getting them to nowhere. I would agree. Um, I thought... On first viewing, it seemed like it was dragging, especially because then Rocket goes back again for the rest of them. But the pacing is really good because there's so much happening, but yet there's still so much comedy peppered in. Like, I love how uh, when Craglin appears, Cragula back in action. It's one of my favorite moments in this film because that's really how they got them out of the jam in volume two when ego's planet is exploding nebula had to power the ship and and be the battery while craglin was flying it and everything is being dragged into the core uh so i thought that that was a great callback um i love how mantis supports cosmo in this moment when you know she's sort of losing her grip on on the hold um you know, Mantis does what she does best and she's able to give Cosmo that extra push that she needs. I think that going back for the animals was expected, but I love how it plays for comedy and you get this shot of all of them, you know, carrying them off like it's Noah's Ark, even, you know, Nebula, who doesn't really want to do this. She's got like a kangaroo on her or something. Um, I do feel like going back for the Zune is a bit much I do buy that Peter would do that because we've seen him do things like this before because it's what connects him to his mother so he's always going to want that music but in this case I will buy it because Yandu gave Peter the Zune um so it definitely pays off especially when he gives it to Rocket 
at the end and he said, I, I went back and got this for you. It's also because of Rocket's connection to Yondu. But I feel like as far as Peter floating away into space, I kind of feel like that was just James Gunn toying with Chris Pratt because that is the only part that feels like it drags a little bit for me. And it was supposed to. It was supposed to toy with us. But I kind of think James Gunn was having a little bit too much fun saying, I'm going to take my pretty boy and make him look hideous for a couple of minutes. Is the high evolutionary dead? That's my question. You see enough comic book movies to know that if you don't actually see the villain die, they're still alive. And with everything that's going on right now, with the MCU being very much up in the air with who the next big bad is going to be, is there an opportunity for the high evolutionary to come back? Absolutely. I think that door is still open. I don't know that it was. I think he was going to die with this franchise or at least this version of this franchise. Um, but I think now that you might need him in all fairness, though, he still has some people on that ship, though they are not loyal to him. If they all can get to a place where they can if there's like a pot or something that they can detach and fly away in, um, it wouldn't surprise me if he managed to survive this. Um, but knowing what we know about Kang now, that would not have been my answer, you know, a couple months ago. Back on Nowhere, Gamora leaves with the Ravagers. Mantis leaves to go out on her own with the Alberisks. And Peter names Rocket the new captain of the Guardians of the Galaxy so that he can return to Earth and reunite with his grandfather. The rest remain to build the new society on Nowhere while Rocket takes control of the Guardians. You know, I think that all in all, it's a great conclusion for all of them. I think that it was an interesting take that you did separate all of them. It's not a surprise that Peter was going to go back to Earth and go see his grandfather. Um, but I think the fact that you took Gamora and sent her off to be a Ravager and not make the turn and stick with the Guardians, I think that was an interesting take, but I think that it worked perfectly. I think this is such an example of absolutely brilliant storytelling because you managed to give us the happy ending in that all of them survive. We didn't have a tragic death. Lord knows you gave us enough of that with Lila Teefs and Floor. Um, so you managed to have the happy ending, but it's not a perfect ending. Uh, and that sort of does make it perfect. I think that everyone ended up exactly where they're supposed to. I love that they didn't just fly off with Gamora. I like that she went back to the Ravagers that, you know, I, I think then it would have felt too perfect if she stuck with them. And the way that she goes out is just incredible. You have this quick beat where she learns to understand Groot. Um, and, and that sort of made me sad because in volume two, they all had to sort of parent him. So it's like Groot is losing a mother and this is hard on him. Um, but it's sort of a growing pains moment in that way. And then you get one of the best lines in this film when she leaves things off with Peter. I bet we were fun. That slaps that she at least 
acknowledges the relationship and she sees where in some way, in some other life, she would have fallen in love with him. And I thought that that was really cool. And I love the the grunt between her and Nebula um, because this is the way that they have mended the fence. This Gamora didn't experience the same things and, and the same journey that she she did in another way with Nebula. So this is as much forgiveness as she's willing to give her. And it's kind of like, I'll be here for you when you need me. I'm just not going to stay with you right now. Um, so I thought that that was really great. The only one that I sort of bump on, I don't know if Mantis go going off on her own completely makes sense. I mean, I, I get the rationale behind it of I was enslaved by ego. I, I want to do my own thing, but I did what ego told me to. I did what the guardians told me to. I want to do it for myself now. I feel like that doesn't really made sense, make sense, especially because now you've established that you are Peter's family, like legitimate family. So I, I don't know that she needed to be so independent. And then you just get that moment with Peter when he goes into the backyard and he's just like, hi, Grandpa. That one killed me. It was great. Like, But again, it was like just the perfect dialogue. It didn't need to be more than that. Yeah, I, I guess that's the only thing, though, is that, yes, part of Peter's arc is that he's been running from his trauma this entire time. But when you see how much his grandpa ha has aged and how much time he lost, I was kind of like, how did you not go sooner? Especially because we did spend a lot of time talking about, you know, when Guardians opens and we're in that hospital room, there are so many people packed in there. Right. This is a big loving family that he was taken from. So the fact that they weren't even like a blip on his radar this entire time. I, I mean, it was the perfect way to close it out, though, that he learned he's got to go face the past and that the Guardians aren't his only family. They're still the chosen family. He can still relink with them anytime, as the end credits tell us that he's going to. Um but I like that he is going back to close this chapter. And I'm glad that you bring that up because that's a big question of mine. When James Gunn was briefly fired from the MCU, you had the cast sign a written agreement saying that if he was no longer on the project, they would not come back to reprise their roles. And... The franchise died with them. So now James Gunn is gone. He signed on to head um, the DC Cinematic Universe. And you have Dave Batista acknowledging that Drax is done, that Drax is over. But now we know that Star-Lord's coming back. So it's interesting that they all swore they wouldn't do it if Gunn wasn't around. Now Gunn's not around, and at the very least, Chris Pratt's going to come back. Money talks and BS walks. I'm not sure that we've seen the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, do I think that they can do it without James Gunn? No. 
I think it's going to not feel the right way. It's going to feel like it's it's going to feel like a bootleg to take a term from yeah. Rescue Rangers. It's going to feel like a bootleg. But if the money's thrown on the table, I think they're going to come back. I hope I'm wrong. But the fact that Chris Pratt is already uh, they're not going to say he's coming back if he doesn't already have an agreement to do so. I think the door's wide open. But is it Star-Lord coming back or is it the Guardians? I I do agree with you. I feel like if they tried to do this again without the core group, that it is going to feel like a cheap imitation. No doubt about that. And I think out of respect for each other and what they built, I don't think that anybody is going to come back for a Guardians movie without James Gunn. But I think because you left it that it's not just Star-Lord. It's that you have Rocket leading Groot, Warlock. Cosmo. There's still a lot you could do with that, too. So maybe it's not the Guardians of the Galaxy, but maybe, you know, they do have a Rocket and Groot animated series. Maybe it's something like that that they do. Um, I don't think Bradley Cooper's done. I, I think this is one of Bradley Cooper's favorite roles to play. So I bet you could get Rocket back if you really wanted to. But I don't think that they're going to do the Guardians as we know them. I think that we will see Rocket and his group make cameos in other films. I think that we will see Star-Lord make cameos in other films. I just don't think you're going to have the traditional Guardians as we know them. Or even all of them in the same room anymore. I think they're just going to be sprinkled in and out you know, for funsies. I just want Bradley Cooper to get into a booth and record his dialogue for Cosmic Rewind. I still don't understand why he's not in Cosmic Rewind, and we've never been given a reason as to why he's not in Cosmic Rewind. Probably because, money. It could be. Probably money. But I, I, I'm sure that there are royalties involved because they did film all of that while they were filming, I think, two I or, believe you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because it was before before all of everything happened with James Gunn. Right. Um, so it's not like he wasn't there or they didn't have him. But my, my guess is there's some kind of agreement where they have to be paid out, not only for the work that they did to shoot the video for the ride, but there's there's got to be some kind of contractual thing where they're getting royalties on that, too. And his he's probably too high of a price tag. Um. Final thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and final thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy as a trilogy. I'm going to go first. Um, I think that um, I will go back and revisit this one uh, quite often because I do think that it is an outstanding movie. And I think it's just a good Guardians movie. Does it carry the emotional weight the third and fourth time that it carried the first time? No. That's also why, of the three films, I rank it third. There is, to me, no matter how many times I watch the second film, I still get a lump in my throat at the end with the Ravager funeral. I don't get that when I see this. Um, because I think this was just so shocking that the shock wears off, and I think that's a lot of where the emotional response comes from. I've often said that the second film and the first film are 1A, 1B. You're not wrong with whichever one you put in the front. To me, I am partial to the second film. So I go 1A, 1B, 2 and 1, 
And then Volume 3 is ranked third, but it's a very, very close... It's ranked third, but it's a close second, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, yeah, I would completely agree with that, except for, for me, the shock value has worn off, but the emotion hasn't. Um, and that's why, um, not only did I say it before that this isn't going to be one that I rewatch often because it makes me sad, but I had said that when we did our year in review that what stopped this from being my favorite film of 2023 was because I didn't rewatch it as often as I would go back and watch little mermaid. Um, but this is why it's just the emotion. And maybe I, I should be saying that this is the best one out of all of them. If I'm sitting here going, no, I'm too sad to watch it. If then clearly it's the most impactful, but I think a lot of it is just because some of the images and the sounds are disturbing because volume two makes me just as emotional, if not more so because of the Ravager funeral. But I will rewatch that all the time. I probably watch it like once a month or at least have it on in the background in some capacity. Um, but yeah, for, for me, um, the order would definitely be one and two are interchangeable and this comes last, but by no means does that mean that it's a bad film or that I don't like it. Because as far as Guardians goes, this is the best trilogy in the MCU for me. Um, Captain America is great. I like Iron Man. I know a lot of people don't like the second and third one. I still like that as a trilogy. Um, I don't even love Spider-Man as, as much as I like Iron Man and Captain America. Um, but yeah, to me, this is the best one by far. Well, we want to know what you have to say about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and about the trilogy as a whole. Join the conversation on social media at Monoreal Radio on all major platforms or send us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is coming up, but first a quick break. News of the Week is proudly sponsored by KMV Travel. KMV Travel is a boutique travel agency that helps families plan personalized vacations and create unforgettable memories in the most magical place on Earth. Planning for a Disney vacation can be stressful, but it doesn't need to be when you're working with a KMV Travel specialist who will work with you to customize the perfect vacation for you and your family. Your KMV Travel Advisor will help you determine what parks to visit on each day, ensure you know the ins and outs of essential tools like My Disney Experience and Genie Plus apps, assist with dining reservations, and of course, share their favorite hacks so you get the most out of your vacation. Visit kmvtravel.com to start making magic now. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney World, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of. Jackie helped us with every step of the planning, and she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget. She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions. These days, it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip, and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World, and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice and making it all a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we, we realized we wanted to add on another park day, so we texted Jackie early in the morning, and she got back to us right away, and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner. This was an 
unforgettable family trip to Disney World, and Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. So news this week, we hate to start on a downer, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention the passing of Glynis Johns. She passed away at age 100. We know her from Mary Poppins. I mean, but 100 years old, man. I, well done, Sister Suffragette. I mean... And 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 up until the end, she was seemingly in very good health. Yes. Always seemed spry and was always very um, enthusiastic when talking about Mary Poppins. And, she loved that role, you know, and her her experience on set. So she will she will be greatly missed. Um, okay, let's move on to some other news. Echo has dropped on Disney Plus, and there's a lot that can be said about this because you know we just spent the last you know over hour and a half talking about the mcu and you know where exactly our next big bad is going to come from because it's now seemingly over with kang right and we talked about that last week i think there's an opportunity here for kingpin i'm excited for this because i love vincent d'onofrio i think there's an opportunity here for kingpin to play a larger role in the mcu this might be an opportunity for them to make a flawless break and hit the reset button yeah i mean we really don't like to speculate too much when we deliver news especially because we have not gotten a chance to watch it yet um and they did drop all five episodes yeah, um, i don't love that if i'm being honest yeah i like when they do them uh episodically each week instead of giving us the whole series but um you know, we are going to sit down and try to knock it out sooner rather than later because I'm interested. I loved the um, introduction of these characters in the Hawkeye series. Yeah. Um, and I've been wanting more. And I thought it was kind of interesting that I, I know that the strike was on. We never really got a lot of trailers. And then they dropped the trailer like two days before <laughs> the rest of the show. So, like, it hasn't been heavily promoted. Um and I think they could have done a much better job of that because they could have started teasing Kingpin as this big bad. Because um, I actually think that that would be a really interesting way to go with it instead of having the big bad being this ruler of the galaxy. Like, how cool is it to have a tangible person who's a man on the street? Um, it would be a very different direction to bring the MCU. And instead of the sci-fi elements with Tony and Bruce Banner and Captain America, which turned into more fantasy with things like Thor and Dr. Strange and the guardians. Um, now you can have a shift into a totally different genre with crime. And I think that that could be something that's really cool, especially because um, they've, sort of confirmed that all of the Netflix series are now canon by having Charlie Cox's Daredevil in this series. Um, we sort of knew that that was happening with the cameo in Hawkeye, but now that it's confirmed that he's <clears throat> in Echo, right? Um, I think there's going to be a lot more to do there since they are tying in things or they can tie in things like Jessica Jones now. I do have something though that I feel very strongly about. And it's st it started when we saw the trailer drop a couple of days ago. We know that last month, Disney merged, or is in the process of, 
merging Hulu to Disney+. Plus. That was something that they had announced a long time ago, that they were going to have everything in one login. Correct. And they've started doing it. You have the Hulu tile now on Disney+. Plus. They specifically tell you at the end of the trailer, yes. make mm-hmm. sure to set your parental settings to TVMA on Disney+. Plus. To me, I'm not trying to sound, you know, like an old fogey. Disney Plus is not a streaming service that should be TVMA. I believe that there is a place for TVMA. I think that place is called Hulu. And I don't think it needs to be, nor should it be, on Disney Plus where four and five-year-olds can access it. I know you don't try to sound like an old fogey. You just so often do. Uh, no, but I do agree with you. We had said this when they announced the merger. I think we had talked about it on a Dockside chat that we thought it was a terrible idea. And while I appreciate that there is a parental block on it, how often do you think that parents are going to remember to log in to watch their show and then switch it back before their kid? Especially like what happens if you you know fall asleep on the couch watching TV that night you go to bed and then your kid is up at six o'clock in the morning and then they're going to be able to start pulling these Hulu titles like the Kardashians or there are some movies on here that are very mature. And now, you know, especially after all of these big wins at the Golden Globes for things like Poor Things, which Disney does own, what happens when that gets to Hulu and you get to see all of Cruella DeVille in her glory. How's that going to go? Yeah. Um, so the Golden Globes uh, did happen this past weekend. 27 nominations for Disney as a company. Um, their wins all came with The Bear and with Poor Things. So nothing, quote unquote, Disney proper won at the Golden Globes. But it's Hulu. It's Fox Searchlight. And, you know, we went and saw Poor Things last week. It's incredible. It's an incredible film. But I mean, listen, I'm I'm just gonna put this out here. Um I was surprised. We had a whole conversation about this after the um after we saw it. Because you knew nothing going in. All I knew was that she was a Frankenstein esque character put together by Willem Dafoe. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything about <laughs> the rest of it. Um to be fair, I didn't tell you. Well, Emma Stone, and she was great in the movie. Um, she must spend a third of the movie completely naked. And it's an R-rated film. She's allowed to do that. I was surprised, and I said it to you then, that after Disney acquired Fox Searchlight, I'm surprised that they would have had her in that sort of role, in that sort of position, considering she is Cruella DeVille you know, in in other in another film, soon to be a second film, if they, of course, move forward with the sequel, all under the same Walt Disney banner, and Mark Ruffalo's in the movie, and you see an awful lot of Mark Ruffalo with Emma Stone, he's Bruce Banner, and it just kind of got my wheels turning, and you know they're going to hammer this because it won so many awards, and now it's going to be pushed to Disney+. Plus. Well, here's the thing, and I think this is a big misconception. Disney did not 
produce this movie. They didn't say, let's cast the Hulk and Cruella in a movie and watch them go at it for, you know, 75% of the film. Uh, This was an acquisition that they got. It was already fully produced. They just distributed it under one of their child companies. Uh, Emma Stone has worked with the director. I think this was their fourth time. Um, so he sort of put this together with her in mind. So it's, it's not like Disney, you know, was, was championing it from the beginning just because they thought they could cash in on something like this. But the fact is, you know, they bought an artistic film. I think, you know, you mentioned that Emma Stone is nude in a great deal of it. It's tasteful nudity. It's not anything that's really, um, I mean, it's over the top. It is. And at times, a little gratuitous, I think is fair. But it's not anything that's like horribly offensive. However, even though this is all part of the Walt Disney Company, it is not reflective of the Disney brand and should not be so easily accessible to children. Right. And so that's where I think, and look, people are going to say, well, it's on the parents to make sure that they have a parent account, that they have a kid's account, that they have different parental settings. You're not wrong about that. But in reality, I don't think most people are going to work that hard. And I don't understand why you needed to merge these two streaming services. Also, kids are brilliant with technology. They're going to figure it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, listen, great film. If if you're an adult, go see it. Don't let your six-year-old watch it. Yes. For a multitude of reasons. Um. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how all of this goes. Um. Keeping with the movie news. On the heels of Bob Iger saying that we're going to shift the focus to storytelling and we're not going to focus as much on sequels and then immediately announces Frozen 4 before Frozen 3 is even being made, um, we, um, we get a, a shock announcement yesterday, shock announcement, that The Mandalorian is hitting the big screen. It's going into production at the end of this year, but we are getting a Mando, a Mando and Grogu feature film and I am not happy about this I am not happy about this at all I am more excited for a new John Favreau flick than I am a Mando movie if that makes sense I think what makes the Mandalorian series so successful is just that it's a series it's the way they are telling stories within the Star Wars universe. I don't think that they needed another movie. What they need is cash flow. And that's what this is. They they want box office numbers and they want to say, look, we're back on top. And that's what they did is that they leaned on their golden goose again. I feel like you're just taking what is supposed to be a full season of The Mandalorian and condensing it into a film for for the exact reason that you just said. Um, I think The Mandalorian is special because it's television, because it's a long-form way of telling stories. I think that it is unique to Star Wars because it's not just another movie. 
Um, I think it's unique in Star Wars in that it not only expands on the Star Wars cinematic universe, but also the animated television universe. And I think that it, it is so special and it is so beloved because it's episodic television. The fact that you're going and slapping it on a movie screen, while I'm happy for the actors and actresses involved, that they get to be, you know, in, in something that's going to see a theatrical run, and I think that that's very important, this does feel very much like a cash grab. This feels like the strike has killed our slate, so let's fix it. Exactly. And it also seems like, here we go again, we are talking out of both sides of our mouth. We are going to find new, unique characters, new storytelling, no sequels, and immediately announcing sequels. Yeah, if they had announced another new film had been greenlit, I think it would have softened my stance on this a bit. But... It's coming. We don't know when. There is no release date just yet, but um, we do know that it is coming. Let's focus into some parks news, starting with the International Festival of the Arts. The foods have been announced. Yes, we got the full foodie guide. Uh, we're seeing a couple of returning favorites, such as the figment cake at the Odyssey Pavilion. That rainbow cake with the freeze-dried uh, uh, Skittles. Skittles. Yeah. I, I wanted to call them sprinkles. Skittles. I am so excited that that is back. You loved that. Like, you're not a sweets person, but, like, you could not get it. Because it was a good cake. It was so moist and for what it is like it looks like it's going to be really dense and it wasn't no um so that we were happy to see coming back um the mozzarella palette in italy is back um it was really good and i liked the different dis dipping sauces but i remember that was like a ten dollar price point i feel expensive. like that's expensive for what you're getting and you are really paying for the presentation. Uh, let's talk about some of the new stuff, though. What do you think of this new popcorn bucket? I think um, this is ridiculous. Really? Like design-wise or or that they the way that they chose Figment? Or do you think there's going to be hype hmm. or, or too uh, much hype? There, well, we know there's going to be too much hype. This yeah. is the new thing. Um, Hopefully, they're going to be smart about it and just do the virtual queue... And, and not even try what they did last year. Yeah, well, it's going to be limit two per person per transaction. So in other words, you can go through as many times as you want. You just can only buy two at a time. Um, I mean, first off, this is popcorn that was made weeks ago. It's going to be in a plastic bag, so it's not going to be fresh. Um, I feel like they're leaning into the idea that anything can be a popcorn bucket as a means of tying it into imagination. I, I like the fact that you've got the imagination pavilion here, but to me, this is just too much. I, I feel like this is just ridiculous. This is hysteria. Um, 
like, I'm sorry, but not everything can be a popcorn bucket. And I think that the fact that they, for, and it looks cheap. Like, I'm looking at this. It just looks cheaply made. It, and they're going to turn around and charge people $40 for it. And people are going to wait online for five and six hours. And they're going to turn around and sell them for three and $400 on eBay. And so feeds the, the, the machine. Um, you know, the same thing happened this week at Marathon Weekend at the Expo with things getting bought up and resold immediately. Like, lather, rinse, repeat. I'm kind of tired of it with these popcorn buckets. It also looks a little bulky. Like, I wouldn't want to be carrying that around. I feel like it would make a cuter bag, like a lounge fly, than it does a popcorn bucket. Like, if you had a different material... Um, you know, almost like a stony clover with the see-through. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be much easier to carry than this bulky plastic thing. Yeah. Uh, the Craftsman Courtyard. Uh, these are really interesting. Both new items here. Um, they're both sandwiches. The grilled pork belly with salsa verde, broccoli rob, pickled peppers, and raclette cheese on grilled sourdough be uh, bread and a... Uh, grilled marinated skirt steak with caramelized onions and mushrooms, blue cheese fondue, and arugula on a grilled French roll. And Heck these yes. look dynamite. Yeah, I will definitely be hitting up that booth. Um, and it looks like a lot of the other, like most of what's new here is in beverage. Yeah. Everything else is more or less the same. Um, but yeah, it's it, a lot of the food hasn't changed. Which is fine. I do wish that they would have changed this gnocchi poutine at the refreshment port because I remember this was so dry last year. I'm kind of surprised that of all things, this is what's coming back. But you know what? I would be willing to give it a second chance. I would consider it by like the second or third time through. Um, I would consider giving it another try, but I'm not going to... Um, it's not going to be something that I'm going to prioritize the first time around the way that we did the last time that we were at the festival. I'm just excited to go. This is my favorite festival, so I'm I'm super stoked to go paint the mural and go see some show tunes. And for those that want to say goodbye to the Country Bears, we do have a closing date. It's going to close on January 27th of this year. We know that they're going to do a full renovation, a new show, um, and it will be opening, quote-unquote, summer 2024. So logic dictates that that means Memorial Day, but it's Disney, so uh, probably... Uh, a random Wednesday in the middle of June <laughs> is when they will reopen the Country Bears. All right, so the 27th, that does not give us a lot of time to get down there and check it out. But we're, we're going to have to see it one last time before it's done. And if you are a Florida resident looking to go to the parks and visit Festival of the Arts and waste your time on the popcorn bucket or go see the Country Bears, um, they do have a really great offer going right now. Um two-day ticket or a three-day ticket, right? The two-day ticket, $199 for a Florida resident. The three-day ticket, uh, $219. And that offer is going to run from January 11th through March the 15th. Um, I think this is smart to do this now. I mm -hmm. think it's smart to get locals in the parks because 
in it, despite spring break and president's week and all that and MLK coming up, this is one of the slower times of the year. So I think that it's really great and really smart that you're giving Florida residents who can shoot over quickly on a day or two's notice the opportunity to come and save some money as opposed to being in for $150 on a one-day ticket. Yeah, this is perfect if you really want to experience a couple of days at the Festival of the Arts. Like if we didn't live so close, if we were, you know, driving up from Miami or something, I would have said, you know what, this is perfect. Let's go see the Country Bears one more time. Let's go do the Festival of the Arts and we'll we'll book a room for the night. Yeah, I think at that point it's just really approachable and you know sometimes you can snag really great last minute deals on hotels whether it be a good neighbor or you know if you are a florida resident that's driving in and you have your car you know universals just down the road folks and they always offer like a really hey you want to stay tomorrow night 74 bucks over a cabana bay there's always a, a way that you could do it and i think that that's great uh we do have a contest uh, winner to announce here. We have a really great prize. It is our uh, Funko Pop Ant-Man keychain. That is going to uh, at just your average CV on Instagram. So congratulations to you. We will get your shipping information and get your prize pack sent out. Thank you so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Monoreal Radio will always be free, but there are many ways that you can support the show. Please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Join the conversation on social media at Monoreal Radio on all major platforms. Share your favorite episodes with family and friends who may enjoy them. And of course, book your next trip with Jackie. Links to everything can be found at monorealradio.com. We all get one story. Make yours a magical one. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.